Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Michael Duma. He's the author, most recently, of Creative Historical Thinking, published by Rutledge. And he's director of the Georgetown Institute for the Study of Markets and Ethics at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. Michael, welcome to Historically Thinking. Nice to meet you. So, uh, in the book, uh, you argue that history, quote, be recognized as a subject intimately related to individual experience and an inherently creative endeavor. So, what do you mean by history as a creative endeavor? Inherently creative endeavor. Yeah, well, a lot of us, we grow up and we attend these K-12 through schools where history is a set of facts, mm-hmm. it's memorization. But when we realize that at some point somebody had to put those stories together and put those textbooks together, that they had to create these, they had to write them, they had to think this through. Now, our own personal stories, our own histories of our families, our ethnic groups, whatever, things that we know, we're building those all the time. You know, we're constantly thinking of them. Um, and so a lot of times it's this formal history that we think is perfectly set, it's fixed, it is what it is, right? It's a certain thing. But if we recognize that history is always being written, always being written again, is that everywhere that history is being put together, written history, somebody has to create it, somebody has to rethink it. And so it's a, it's a constant, ongoing process. Historians are artists, and um, you may be familiar with this. There's an old debate in history. Is history more an art or a science? Mm -hmm. And I'm coming at it a little bit more from the art side. Mm -hmm. I think we've forgotten a lot of this, that that history is a narrative art. How we weave things together is, uh, is, you know, determined by our creative thinking. Mm -hmm. Let me, um, let's go back to that facts point. Um, you develop this um, little ways into your book, so we're skipping around the book a little bit, but you write at one point, the ability to recall facts has lost its power. Uh, what do you mean by that? Think about the people that lived um, 100 miles from a library 200 years ago. Um, they, you know, there's these stories of like cowboys, right? They would find a scrap from an old can or something, and they would read it. They learned something new. That people were desperate for knowledge, but a lot of times they didn't have it. And if you were uh, an educated gentleman from England, or you had attended university, you would learn things that other people didn't know, and they couldn't challenge you. And so facts used to be powerful. If you had the facts, you were able to teach. You were able to get the jobs. You were able to control things. You know, a lot of these 150 years ago or some of these. These educated university men, they like to um, recite poetry. They would always memorize, and they would have some phrase, and they would say, well, Shelley said this, and, and uh, mm. you know, uh, Hegel said that. And now we know that anybody has access to those facts, that those facts no longer enable us to get great jobs or great prestige or put other people down. It's now the ability to think 
through them. Anybody can access those, use them, and classrooms, we don't need them for fact teaching mm -hmm. in the way that we did in the past. And yet, um, you also use the phrase the fetishization of facts. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, we persist in fetishizing fact, mm -hmm. and nevertheless, people continue to believe that that's what historians do. We collect facts. Yeah, and I don't, as a historian who supports historical thinking exercises in the classroom, I don't want to say that facts are not important. Yeah, well, I, think, I was about I, to pin you on that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, think, I think we need them, and the debate is not an either-or. I think creative historical exercises or historical thinking exercises in the classroom help people to remember facts. Mm -hmm. There are certain facts that we should know. Facts are useful to help build a framework so that we can immediately place things in context. Well, I mean, the facts that we know. I don't know about you, but I'm lousy with dates, and I've found out most historians seem to be lousy with dates. Well, uh, but I, I like to get them in the right order, at least. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think that's the right attitude. I'm strange enough. I'm good with dates of a certain kind. Uh -huh. with historical dates. I'm terrible with birthdays. <laughs> I can never remember. <laughs> no, I can't either. Because I can't see them on some chronology. Yeah, you can't put a story to them necessarily. Yeah. You should be able to put a story to them about your friend whose birthday it is, but I, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, chronology. It's probably because you can't put them in a chronology. Yeah, I have a hard time with that. Um, so, at the same time, and I'm going to emphasize this, we're not talking about we're not taking some like radical postmodern turn here. We're not talking about alternative facts. This yeah. is this is a it's weird in the way in which everyone now they're, they're these things have come full circle since the eighties. But yeah, no, absolutely, that's true. And I'm not in my book saying that facts don't exist or they're not important. I'm just saying they're up for debate. Mm -hmm. That. Um, they're chosen, that sometimes we interpret things in different ways. You know, it's an unfortunate thing about the word fact is that it, me it really has two different meanings mm -hmm. in the English language. Originally, I think it meant just a piece of information. Right. And a fact could be either correct or incorrect, true or false. Mm -hmm. It has now um, become the case that people, when they say fact, they automatically mean that it's a true fact. Mm -hmm. um, but historians know that what we're wrestling with is pieces of information that be maybe more or less true, have some probability of being true, you know, and we're constantly um, sorting, sorting through all And it's also, if we can put it this way, that true facts, um, when they assume a different order, tell a different story. Precisely. This is um, sort of a philosophical debate that I've, I've had with some people. Probably why, probably why historians don't like to have this. Yeah, and, yeah. and I haven't come up with an answer, but um, is there an infinite number of histories that we can tell? Mm -hmm. Not just a lot, but an infinite number. Because we can connect facts in any different sort of way, we can write different kind of stories. And so I'm, I lean towards the sense that it's not finite. There actually is an infinite number of histories mm -hmm. that we could possibly write. That is a very that is very much a, like a late one a.m. kind of like yeah, dude yeah, yeah. take the red pill kind of thing. <laughs> sophomores in college. Yeah, sophomore. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, let me read something that you you quote J. W. Swain and and thank you for introducing me to him. Uh, is from a philosophy journal, nineteen twenty three. Uh, let me read the part of this to you and and get your feedback. Swain wrote, history has but little to teach in direct way that has an immediately practical value. The man of affairs will not profit much directly from the so-called lessons of history, though he may get suggestions from other men who have faced his problems. 
but a study of historians will bring their reader's mind into contact with other philosophies and points of view, and thus broaden and deepen his view of the world. Well, this was um, 100 years even before Swain, and, and I realize Swain is um, um, somewhat obscure now, but, but mm. history, um, before a long time even before Swain, was thought to be the... the um, to, to teach us morals, it was it was we learned by example it's and experience. Really, a Renaissance humanist when yeah. they when they recreate historical study, they're yeah. looking at Herodotus and they say magister vitae. Right? Yeah, this, the history is this, this school of, of teaching us about the world. Mm -hmm. And um, Swain is um, a little bit skeptical of that, and he says it's not specific things that we can learn. Mm -hmm. It's more of a general sense of the past that we can work through. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to the view, um, I think Stephen Pinker and some others have talked about this, that historical novels over time gave us emotions and sympathy. We started to learn from other people. And I think it's the same, same way with written history, is that the more histories you read, you understand the possibilities of the, like different courses of life that you could go through one way or another. Yeah. You can apply things. You can apply the lessons of history in in some ways, but not specifically to answer direct questions. Yeah, I think uh, people often speak of the novel as allowing you to live a different life, be under a different in a different place. But uh, good history can do the same thing, just just as well. Yeah. Um, we often justify history teaching or history departments or. I don't think academics do this so much anymore because we know that we're lying if we say, learn history and you will solve all your problems going forward. But that's that's sort of the attitude that you see in a lot of old books or people commenting on history. Yeah. If, if you merely just knew everything, even if, here's another philosophical question for you, even if we knew everything about the past, could we predict the future from that? I'm skeptical. I, I think no. We... Um it's interesting. We have to have, a, have to have you and David Staley on, who's just been on talking about alternative universities, since he's written, I think, a book called The History of the Future. Mm -hmm. And he's, he believe, does believe that history can lead to some sort of future casting, or whatever you wish to call it. Um, I, it depends what day of the week it is. I think about four days out of the week, I'm with you. Three days of the week, I would think that something, we can learn something about the, the past. But it, it, I would say... What makes me skeptical is no one seems to have done it yet very well. Yeah. I'm pretty skeptical of our ability to predict things because yeah. I know that we're not even very good at post-dicting. No, exactly. Post-diction yeah. is what yeah. historians do. And um, yeah, th these are these are deeper questions about human volition and and um, you know maybe things like whether we have souls or mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. or more than the mechanistic universe that determines the course of history. Mm -hmm. So you've, we've, okay, we've, you've established um, that history is a creative discipline. Um, what's the importance of it being a creative discipline? Just reiterate that. If, if you've already reiterated that satisfactorily yeah. as far as you're concerned, well, just because we were wandering a little bit there. A lot of things. I mean, we need to re-inspire people to think of history as something that helps them that they can they can use the parts of history that they're interested in. So we prescribe a certain set of history mm -hmm. in schools, mostly national history, political history, military history. And a lot of times it fails to connect to people. Mm -hmm. Later on in life, they discover that they can study other things, and that's also history. Mm -hmm. If there's not something about history that you like, then it's like they say about um, uh, the 
man who had, has not experienced London, has not lived or something like that. He would, does not love London, does not love life. Exactly. For in London he, there is all that life has to afford. There, see, great. I, I need you to answer these <laughs> questions. But he that does not love history does not love life because yeah. there must be something in the historical record that interests you. Um, whether it's just yesterday and it's your brother or it's... 600 years ago mm -hmm. and uh, some cultural I, I mean, I, I think that what you're describing in, in history is what people promise people from study abroad programs, mm -hmm. yeah. which is why I, I always, you know, that one hears that quote so often that the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. People never milk that for the full richness. Well, you know, if, with the way that you do this, you, you, but you would want to visit a foreign country yeah. and learn how they do things differently. And there. I think that's a great metaphor, but yeah. it's so little and so late in our educational lives yeah. that we're given any freedom to think of history in a creative sense. Mm -hmm. It's not, and I think this is incorrect, it's not until the senior year of college most of the times that people take a historical methods class mm -hmm. and they get a BA in history and they haven't learned to be a historian until the very end. So we teach them facts. It depends stories. on the college. I'm, I'm proud to say that at Augustana College, we you you can do that when you're a freshman okay. uh, or first year student. Yeah, um, so if I were to reorganize it, I would say anybody that's declaring a history major should take a methods course right away. Yeah. Start writing. Start thinking about how to actually be a historian. And I think it's, I also think it should be integrated into an, into an actual content as well, uh, rather than have a, a separated methods class. But this is a, this is a separate uh, discussion, perhaps, and um, uh, listeners will recall episode 100. We discussed this a little bit with uh, Sam Weinberg and Lendl Calder. Um, you've got some great ideas, some great classroom ideas. And I want to talk about those, like ways of thinking about space, space and time. Um, Talk about that. What I love is the mental map of the USA. I've done something like that. I, I, I irritated lots of, and it probably was silly, but I was like, I can't, how can I talk about New York to these students in Indiana when they have no idea where it is? So I, I had them, I gave them map quizzes. You did something more creative than that. Well, you're familiar probably with the old New Yorker yeah. map of, of the United States where it's Manhattan. A New Yorker's view of the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like 50% of it is Manhattan. Yeah. New Jersey is real far away. And California and China. Mid know. Midwest is like here be cows. Yeah, something, something like that. that. Well, the, the concept of mental maps is used a lot in cultural geography, mm -hmm. and that's where I learned it. Um, and I've, I guess, maybe coined the term in some sense of uh, mental timelines rather than mental maps. Mm -hmm. And what I have students do to get them in the mode, I first have them try to draw a map of the United States as well, either as accurately as possible or how they see it. So you might draw Florida larger, New York larger. Yeah. You can, of course, draw greater detail in a place that you're familiar with. Um, and so that's an analogy, the mental map. You've, you've got one figure, 1 1.3. Yeah. It's got like, you know, uh, places they've lived, um, places they've visited, obviously. Tex-Mex, where, where Texas is. Um, surfers, you know, something like that. Yeah, and the point of a mental map, or one of the points is, is that we can find our way using a less than perfect 100% accuracy. All, all maps, of course, are representations of reality mm -hmm. at some scale. And, and they don't have to be perfect. They have to show us how to get from one place to the next. So taking this into history, I like to say chronologies do something similar. We have mental timelines. If we get people to draw their understanding of American history or the history of their own personal life, show us the events on there. Show us whether that timeline goes 
up and down, left or right. Yeah, you, you have them uh, explain this. You have them draw uh, the way that they conceive of a day, a week, and a year. I mean, how does that how does yeah, that work? That, that's right. Um, and this was one of the motivating factors for me when I just started thinking about um, creativity in history and the idea that we were all looking at it in different ways. I was talking to my brother one time, and I said, I thought all people saw the year going clockwise, mm. like the clock, and that the winter was at the bottom and the summer was at the top, and it's like a compass rose, and it goes around this direction. It's, it's interesting. You should like pause right now, and everyone listening can think, how do I see the year? Yeah, exactly. And then just, it's, well, it's, not, it's a, not all people do. No. So, First of all, I discovered not all people see it like I do. Because I, I see it probably as a, a, a ribbon or a road in mm -hmm. front of me. It's probably my immediate thought, you know? Yeah, and I discovered my dad saw it that way, except his summer is at the bottom and his winter is at the top. Okay. I can't remember if it's clockwise or counterclockwise. Um, and so I questioned, okay, maybe historians are people that are better at having some uh, mental diagram of time so we can keep track of time and mm -hmm. put it into boxes. And I haven't done any like empirical research on this, um, but I've had some historians that tell me they don't do this at all. Or at least mm -hmm. they, this is, uh, I can be skeptical. It's like people that say they don't dream. Right. Exactly. Everybody dreams. Um, a lot of us use spatial representations to organize time in one way or another. And um, there's lots of different ways to do this idiosyncratically, um, culturally, or influenced left to right. Mm -hmm. common mm -hmm. in the Western world. Top to bottom, I think, mm -hmm. is common in China. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we're reconceptualizing time, like Facebook, new things at the top, mm -hmm. something like this. And um, so I get students to do that, to share with each other, to understand that, look, it's okay that some of us see things in different ways, that some of us are stronger in history the way some people are stronger in art or physics, and to recognize that um, that might not be a mistake. Mm -hmm. It might be that you just have a different way of looking at it that might lead to some insight of how history is structured. So you, you fool around, you, you discuss um, that traditional timelines versus a non-linear approach. Mm -hmm. What's a non-linear approach to thinking about timelines? Or Okay, so by, by linear, uh -huh. I mean generally historical timelines that start at one point in the past and march straight forward. Mm -hmm. Non-linear, there's you know, an infinite variety of non-linear timelines. One example I see you're looking at in the book yeah. is a lecture on the Great Depression. Sure. You can't give, I would say, any lecture of any value by putting all of the facts in order and simply marching through and say, on Tuesday this happened, Wednesday mm -hmm. this happened, 1928, 1929. Mm -hmm. No, the best stories that are often told, the best histories, include some foreshadowing, some backtracking, some zooming in and out. So you say, in the 30s we had a Great Depression, but to explain this I have to go back to the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, <laughs> or the Depression in 1921, and what happened then. And this can be rightly confusing for students that don't have this uh, in front of them. So I say sometimes it's best to draw diagrams of time mm -hmm. that's not linear, or draw a, a linear um, left to right timeline and say, we're going to start here, come back, we're going to move forward, mm -hmm. you know, so they can follow you as, you don't want to be told that you're jumping around. I think all historians have to jump around a bit 
when they're telling their stories. Mm-hmm. There's um, you also describe the practice of like Mark Twain, Kurt Vonnegut. This relate, relates to this, that mm-hmm. writing history, of course, you can avoid, well, actually historians rarely tell a straight up linear narrative of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and some authors, Twain, Vonnegut, John McPhee is one of my page, very good at crafting uh, non-linear narratives yeah. uh, using sort of crazy looking outlines. Yeah, nonlinear or even multiple timelines happening at mm-hmm. the same time. Those books that go back and forth from different chapters of different settings or a Seinfeld episode that shows you what's going on with Elaine at the same mm-hmm. time something's happening with George mm-hmm. somewhere else. You know, and too many people I think were taught K through twelve that there is a history. It's this national time, this national timeline, and things either belong to it or they don't. So they, you know, my grandmother's not part of history per se, mm-hmm. but Martin Luther King is, mm-hmm. or something like that. Or even the confusion that um, that there's a European timeline of things that are happening at the same time that there's an American timeline. Mm-hmm. These timelines are artificial constructions that we use to connect things, and there's an infinite number of possible timelines that we could that we could form. Mm-hmm. Now. If we belong in the same society and we want to communicate with each other, they should have elements on them that other people recognize. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, we stick a lot of times to those same basic facts of history, those those points on the on the mental map. Do you have any other classroom exercises you would suggest? I mean, so filling in a blank map or having them draw a, a spatial map of the United States or some or the world, God help us, that would be that would be interesting. Um, coming up with their own idea of a metal timeline. Any other sort of idea? Well, um, I, I have some other ones where, where they draw things. A number of them, I have a chapter on diagrams. Yeah, we're going to get to that the, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I show the diagrams that I do. Yeah. Um, the classroom exercises I like to do are, um, I, so I collect antiques, but you can't just do a show and tell. You can't bring in one thing. <laughs> you need to bring in 50 photographs or 100 baseball cards or something like mm-hmm. this. And I've discovered oftentimes you can have history majors fourth year, they've not been to an archives yet, and they've never held old stuff. Mm-hmm. And since I buy and bring in cheap old beat up photographs, they get to hold daguerreotypes and tintypes and everything. Mm-hmm. And I ask them to do things like put it in chronological order the best you can. Mm-hmm. And then we can think about what were the clues for mm-hmm. this? Was it the wear and tear? Was it the different style of the clothes, the different photographs? Um, so anything that you can bring into class to make them do a historical detective puzzle. Photographs work really good for this because if you can get all photographs from one family or one city, drop the photographs in front of the class and say, okay, you're breaking into groups. Each group has 20 minutes and you have to tell me where this is or who this is or tell me a story about these people. And not as a lot of people when they're 19, they think a story means something made up. No, I mean a historical story that plausibly connects the things that you see in this picture. Mm-hmm. You know? That would be a very interesting um, thinking aloud exercise uh, to have, uh, you know, one of uh, Lyndall Calder's favorite things to do is give uh, people, a, one, a historian and a student, a box of artifacts or pictures related to Little Bighorn. Yeah. And, uh, and the historian or the, the professor does a much better job than the student. Yeah. And I saw this in Weinberg's book. Yes, as Weinberg, yes, they've done it as well. But it turns out that the professor is a professor of Chinese history. Mm-hmm. And the student has actually just taken a class on the American West. Um, but it's, it's thinking a lot. You see the ways in which a historian can think through things. Yeah. Um, that's a really useful The types point. of things that they ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the types of things they ask. 
what they're looking for, how they're reasoning their way through it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about hats. Okay. You have a great little chapter on hats. This, important this, uh, chapter nine, why men stop wearing hats and other important questions. This, this began as a joke at graduate yeah. school. And if you can publish any jokes from graduate school, it's really you're good. a victory yeah. winning in my opinion. It was my friend Rob and I, and we had talked about this at length. The question is, why is it that men no longer wear hats important in question. American society? We're, we wear baseball caps from time to time. But if you look at old parade photographs or something yeah. from the 1920s, all the men in the audience are wearing hats. Baseball games. Uh, like in the 50s, even Dodger Stadium yeah. or whatever. You see all these guys. Everyone's wearing a hat. And then something happens. And by about 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, men are no longer wearing hats in society. And... The question seems um, seems unimportant. You know, we have other historical questions that we should ask about, um, you know, the Constitution or civil rights yeah. or something. But this is a perfect example to say to students, look, we don't have the answer. We don't know things. Historians are sometimes ignorant. One thing we don't know is why men stopped wearing hats. And so I've come up we with... We don't? I thought it was John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Well, this is the view of... Uh, of many people, yeah. Robert Krulwich and right. the PR folks. I don't think they've really done... Their research or thought he, ac- he actually wore a top hat to his inauguration, despite what people think. Oh, really? Yes, I, I've seen the pictures. That's, that's news to me. Yeah. But um, so I've come up with, I think now in the book, I might have 11, but I might have 12 or 13 possible theses now for uh-huh. why men stopped wearing hats. It could be society was becoming more egalitarian, so we, st- where our jobs were less connected to the cook wearing a certain hat, mm-hmm. the cart puller wearing another kind mm-hmm. of hat. It might be that we spend more time in cars and more time indoors, and the hat used to protect mm-hmm. us from the elements. It might be um, less formality. Um, some people say, well, it's, it's because the fashion world changed. This, we can question the strengths or weaknesses of these theses. Um, some is like a hygiene thesis. People mm-hmm. just showered more. They didn't need to cover their heads mm-hmm. with hats. Um, now, it's easy. Oh, another one is Ray-Ban in the 30s. Once you invent sunglasses, maybe you don't need hats oh, as, yeah. as many more. As many more. Um, and so I get students, you can break them into groups arguing for different positions. They get ha- very vociferous yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah. Or have them come up with their own. And let's say there's, let's say, 11 possible theses. You can say, okay, you get to combine three. Or you can combine as many as you want. Now, if you combine all 11, however, you're not giving us an answer. So the job of a historian is to say, what is the cause and effect? And if you said everything caused it, mm-hmm. you haven't told us. What Nothing caused it. it. You, yeah, you haven't told us what caused the decline of hats. But if you say one thing, if you say Ray-Ban alone is responsible for the death of the hat in American history, mm-hmm. eh, your, your, your thesis is probably weak and lacking. So what historians need to do, I talk about in the book, is figure out how to aggregate their theses mm-hmm. or disaggregate a whole bunch of possible theses. There, there are a lot of other great things that we could add to that. I, did, I once got some students intrigued by showing them pictures of wigs yeah. in the 18th century, mm-hmm. drawings. They had no idea that there are so many varieties, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that they showed different statuses in society. Mm-hmm. And how did that happen? You know, and, how, and, then, and then to realize that the wig only began like in the late 
17th century. Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, there were there, their wigs existed before, but people wore their own hair. Yeah. I mean, like Charles II, for example, wore a lot of people wore their own hair. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of a sudden, there's this great change and beards. Yeah. I mean, you can't see this because this is a podcast. We but past peak beard, Michael. Have we? Have I we? Think be- in society, we passed peak beard really? two years ago. Really? Sure. Did we really? Yeah. Uh, Michael has a very uh, handsomely trimmed beard. <laughs> Um, but you know, back in 1860, that would be a I would have been weak, yeah. weak beard. This is nothing compared nothing. to Ulysses Grant. So. No, I mean, which is a, and his is kind of mild, a mild beard, a mild square beard. But it's like four out of but, but like in 1845, no one had a beard. Yeah, you know, 15 years before that, it's where did the beard come from, and and why was well, Charles? Have you read some of the arguments? Is about uh, what are beards? What are beards are? Well, Charles Evans Hughes, by the way, last presidential candidate with a beard. It's to signal without a beard signals youth. Uh-huh. But with a beard signals manliness or vitality or mm-hmm. something like this. Sure. And, and you can distinguish yourself from society. And then as soon as there's some trendsetters, others follow. Mm-hmm. At least that's, that's the theory of thesis. Yeah. So the idea now is that we've hit peak beard and the men try to distinguish themselves by not having not a beard. Not having a beard. Well, why the lack of variety of beard in modern age compared to, say, the really the plethora of different styles of beard? Monoculture in the United States. Yeah. No, yeah. It's like we used to have regional varieties of apples. True. <laughs> so we that's why we had that we had sideburns and we had all yeah. those magnificent different types of a Van Dyke or an I, Imperial I think, or I mean, a in the second edition of the book we were gonna have to be a chapter or, on that beards. beards, yeah. Um yeah, well I mean it's like and and wigs too. I mean there's the crazy varieties of but I don't think beards if you wore a certain type of wig you could show that you're a clergyman versus an aristocrat. Yeah. Um but I don't think the beards work like that necessarily. I just no. And I don't anticipate the hats returning anytime soon. Um, it may happen. There was an attempt. We, we tried. Some of us tried. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, although it's nice when it rains. Um, what, are, what are some other uncommon topics that we could think of that would be, would be good for that? I, I, uh, it also all might sound trivial, but they can get, they get students really in, engaged. Well, yeah, this, this is the point. Is So I, I, I was going to say, I'm not... Um, I don't use reacting to the past in the classroom. And I've heard I've heard mixed things. I mean, if it works for somebody, great. Um, but when we, by the way, we I have to say we've got all uh, in the show notes. We'll list to the link to the two previous episodes that we've done on reacting. So. Yeah. If you anything you can do to get students involved, and interested, and I say an argument like history of hats, they have a stake in it because they feel that they may come up with something. Mm-hmm. And, and as history teachers, we've probably all experienced this before, where I. In my examples, I put something in front of the students to interpret, and then when they're done working on it, or they get, they, they struggle and they get frustrated, and they ask me, professor or teacher, what is the answer? Mm-hmm. They think I have the answer. What if I don't have the answer? You know, it's it's photographs. You can interpret them. I don't know the answer mm-hmm. to what these are. There's many possible interpretations. When they realize that that history is not set. That there's not a textbook somewhere that has the answer, but that we can argue about the answer, and mm-hmm. we turn them into historians. And I think that's what we should be doing. You talk about diagrams, and you say, I quote you, of all the possible diagrams used in the classroom, perhaps the matrix is the most simple and easy to use. Why diagrams, and why is the matrix important? Okay. Um, well, you know, we, 
I read, we constantly come back to this idea of different learning styles and whether this is true or not. Yeah. People put it down all the time. And I don't think you have to believe in, in different learning styles to think that diagrams are important to visually reinforce things that you're talking about, to say them in multiple ways. There's a great book, I think it's called The History Teacher or something, or no, Teacher in America by Jacques Barzou, yeah. 17, 1951. Based on research he did during World War II. Yeah. And then parts of it sometimes seem like they could have been written last week. Yeah. It's a little unsettling. And and Barzun, he says, um, what we're trying to do is we have this idea in our head. It's in our skull. And we want to get it through the air Mm. and into the skull of the (laughs) other person. And if we talk and we talk too fast or we say it with words they don't know, it's going to bounce off that other person's head. It's not going to get through. So we need to give them like three or four examples mm-hmm. that as history teachers, sometimes you need to repeat things mm-hmm. or show that in different ways. And then that may lead to that aha moment. Okay, now I get it. So diagrams can do this. They can reinforce things. Yeah. They can be useful as a mnemonic device to remember things mm-hmm. as students are going forward. Um, and then they can be used to sort of explore logical possibilities. And so this is why coming to the matrix, I use um, a two by two matrix, for example, mm-hmm. it's often used in economics. And you might say, okay, here's our two variables. Something is old and something is new. Something is valuable, something is junk. What happens when we have something that's both old and junk? What do we call it? Mm-hmm. Trash. What's <laughs> something that's both old and very valuable? Uh, mm-hmm. An antique or an heirloom. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can create bigger diagrams with bigger matrices, four by four, whatever, to mm-hmm. fill it in with historical positions. And so they can see that, look, historical issues are not sometimes divided on an axis of two things. Mm-hmm. But you don't have just Confederates and Unionists in the Civil War. You have all sorts of people in the middle. Right. Or all sorts of other kinds of positions that somebody um, might come to with these things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, multiple purposes of diagrams. Um, well, another one, I, I don't know if I say it here, it, diagrams help slow the class down and help organize the thoughts of the teacher. So as you're lecturing, you can start in quadrant mm-hmm. one or whatever and move through all the quadrants. And when you've done all eight, four quadrants, whatever, you, you know that you've covered yeah. the bases of the things that you want to talk about in class. And then you can review it or look at it. That's a really good idea. I, I don't use them enough. Yeah. Uh, if if Hardly at all, but it's I especially good for debates. So yeah. one example I have in there is um, the different positions of anti-slavery advocates. Mm-hmm. But you could do the same thing for a revolution. You could do patriots and Tories or mm-hmm. um, presidential candidates of sure. an election, right? And see what they're. Well, in, in this case, you've got William Lloyd Gar- from William Lloyd Garrison, Stephen Douglas to Lysander Spooner, yeah. And so you can get the nuance of their various positions yeah. out. Um, yeah. Okay. The, there's, diff- there's a great deal of difference between Garrison and Stephen Douglas, but in this case, you could even get the difference between, say, Frederick Douglas and Garrison and Spooner and, yeah. and so on. Yeah, and when they study that, they realize that the uh, anti-slavery movement or abolitionism itself wasn't some simple cut and dry. Um, I mean, it's easy for us to say now the obvious morality of the issue, but how do you deal with it from a practical standpoint? There were different mm-hmm. responses. You um, also type a, typologi- a typology diagram, which is interesting. Yeah, and so I've been experimenting with this. I was doing some, I didn't include them in the book, that were more like diagramming sentences. Mm. And this is influenced a little bit by um, 
structuralism. So mm -hmm. looking for the inherent root component parts of a system or a structure. And I was um, I did some research on on caves in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I was looking at old historic inscriptions, people writing their names in caves. And I discovered that over time, people have changed the ways that they've created their signatures. So if, it, if in the year 1800, someone were to carve their name in the cave, they were probably a gentleman with some free time mm -hmm. who had gone into the cave. And they usually wrote um, their last name. Because we, at, back then, identified primarily by last name, and first name was sort of secondary. Mm -hmm. And then they might write the date. This changes over time until they start using their full name. And we could talk about why this might be democratic ethos, gaining grounds. That's very interesting. That's right up there with beers and hats. Yeah. And then in the 20th century, writing your name on things becomes graffiti. Yeah. So people use their first name, yeah. which hides them yes. from getting into trouble. And they don't write where they're from anymore. They start uh -huh. dropping that out. They might write the year, but they write the year in a different format. So now we write it uh, month dash date year. Um, in the past, they did it in some other ways. They would write it out September the 15th, mm -hmm. and they would literally carve the TH above the 15th, yeah, yeah. things like this. So this typology, and we can do this for, for lots of historical developments, can be used if somebody gives me an inscription of a name uh, in the United States, but specifically in Virginia. I, I think it applies elsewhere, actually, in the Anglo-American world. Mm -hmm. And they show me how the person carved their name. I can tell you whether that's 19th century or 20th. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Once you put a topology together. Yeah. You can do that with lots of things. Yeah, yeah. So different ways of looking at history. I like to say that I'm the type of historian that likes lots of facts, mm -hmm. uh, ironically. Mm -hmm. I like to put together a big puzzle using analytic ability to find connections between things. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's these types of historians and they spend their entire life reading one document. Yeah. Some of them, some of them are called lawyers. Mm -hmm. Yes, right? that's true. <laughs> and they, and, and like, they've read the Constitution like yeah. the equivalent of a thousand times. People have written books about the Fourth Amendment or the Ninth and with one line in there. Sure. And so that's a different historical method of looking deep into something and thinking about it expanding from one piece of information where I like to condense lots mm -hmm. of information. Mm -hmm. So the typology or thinking like a structuralist is just one more possible way of thinking like a historian. And that's what I'm trying to inspire is to say, look, I don't know if there's one correct method, but here's a whole bunch of different ways. And if you're getting bored as a historian and you keep doing the same thing, you need the courage to jump into something else. Mm -hmm. And here's some methods that you can use to start in that new direction. Well, that is a great place to tie things up. Okay. Um, my guest has been Michael Duma, Michael J. Duma. He's the author of Creative Historical Thinking. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.